as we were reading the word, an idea came to me. You know in this song that we sang, we said, I don't want to talk about you like you're not in the room. I want to look right at you. And I want to do that as I teach. Uh, the first section of my teaching is going to be personal glimpses of Yeshua. And I want us to watch him. How many of you have an average imagination? How many of you see you have average? How, how many of you have like an overactive imagination? Be honest. I probably have an overactive imagination sometimes, which can be an asset. How many of you would say, I have an underactive imagination? Okay. Well, this is what we're going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you a couple of things from this passage, and we're just going to close our eyes together, and we're going to watch the rabbi. Yeshua is our rabbi, and he's still around. He's still alive. He still reveals himself to us in, in the spirit, and his spirit can activate our imaginations. And uh, that's one of the main jobs of a disciple. You follow your rabbi around. Why? Well, to hear his teachings. Why else? To watch him. You've got to watch him closely. So let's all close our eyes together. And we're just going to watch the master as we uh, look over a couple of things in this parasha. Uh, watch your rabbi at the beginning of this parasha. He sees the people crowding to him. He sees that they're like lost. They're disoriented. They just, some of them are totally clueless about life. And he is such a teacher, he begins to, he begins to explain things to them and teaches his people. Why? Because that's his custom. Keep your eyes closed, keep watching him. I want you to watch him in the spirit. Watch your rabbi doing this. Uh, watch your rabbi in chapter 10 as he goes into the house with his disciples. They sit down for lunch. And his disciples have these puzzled looks on their faces and they begin asking him, Master, uh, what was this parable? Why, why did you say this? And, uh, he starts to explaining things to them, and just in a very personal context. And Yeshua is still alive. He's still available to each of you as disciples. And you can go to him with your questions. And he'll explain things to you in that same personal context. In chapter 10, verse 16, we see the master with children. These parents are bringing their children to him. And he loves these children. He, he has a robust love for these children. He, he grabs these kids. He picks them up. He hugs them. He, he ruffles their hair. And he lays his hands on their head. And he blesses them. And that's the same rabbi that we have today. He, he loves children. He loves to bless children. And likewise, he lo- for, for those of us who are parents, he loves to bless our children through us with that same love and with that same robust faith. In uh, chapter 10, verse 21, the young man comes to the rabbi and he's asking him what he, what he can do for eternal life. This guy's a sincere seeker. And watch your rabbi looking at this young man and seeing his sincerity and seeing the depth of his heart, gazing into the depths of his soul. And watch the look of love on your rabbi's face. It says he felt a love for him. Wow. Just, just personal glimpses of Yeshua. So, so you can open your eyes. But I, I just hope that as, as, we, as we look at the parsha like that, it gives you a, a greater feeling for what scripture study can be like. It doesn't just have to be a bunch of words. It doesn't just have to be narratives that we go through. Use your imagination and you will see Yeshua. Because to the degree that you want to see Yeshua, you're going to see Yeshua. He reveals himself to those who desire him. In a... Chapter 10, verse 6, this is a key about the master and how he studied the word and thought that is going to be very powerful for you. I'm going to drop it in your little key bag right now. Um, in chapter 10, verse 6, he references these guys who are asking him about divorce. They're asking him a difficult halachic question. And he references them to the beginning of history. 
And this is a technique that Yeshua used that is very valuable for us also. If you have a tough question, if, you, if somebody brings you a question about Torah, and why you do Shabbat, or why you think God's commandments are for, are for us today, or whatever, think in terms of the beginning of history, and think all the way to the end of history. Because we're not yet at the end. Yeshua tried to get people looking at the big picture here. He said, well guys, how was it at the beginning with regards to marriage? What was the original status? And it's really smart to do that about questions of Torah with regards to our future also. We are not only people who are grounded in history, but we have a vision of the future that has been given us in the Word. Our future in the Messianic era. The thousand year reign of Christ. If someone asks you about Shabbat and why you do Shabbat, refer them to the future described in the last chapter of Isaiah, where it says that in the future Shabbat's going to be the global day of worship. All flesh are going to be worshiping God every Saturday. Why not get on the bandwagon early? This is an example of looking at the big picture, of referencing history. Uh, the last chapter of uh, Zechariah talks about all the nations, that means Gentiles too, going to Jerusalem for Sukkot. And if they don't, they get famine on their land the next year. Maybe there's a spiritual principle about revival there too. Um, isn't this interesting? Re- refer them to that if people are wondering why you're doing Jewish festivals. Because they're for all of us. And because every nation is going to be doing them in the future. And because it's a key to revival. I.e. rain. Spiritual rain, right? Um, people are talking about how the whole sacrificial system is done away with forever and there's not going to be a temple in the future and we're not going to be doing Shabbat or any of the other festivals like Passover and Sukkot. Refer them to the last eight chapters of Ezekiel because it's the most detailed description of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's the most detailed description of the thousand year reign of Christ described in Revelation chapter 20 that you're going to find. And it talks about all these things. So this is an example of how you can begin to engage people in conversations like your rabbi did. By just looking at the big historical picture. Okay, Colin, if you want to flip the slides forward for me. Great. I have a construction worker here. I thought he would be a good picture of something I want to talk about. Uh, I'm reading a book. I'm rereading a book right now called Why Men Hate Going to Church by David Moreau. I highly recommend this book. It's packed with facts, with statistics, and with some great practical ideas for how to make church not so boring for men. Especially, like, if you're a manly man, church can often be really uncomfortable for you. And this guy talks about this. He talks about a, a lot of things along those lines. I want to I wanna read you a brief quote, and then we're going to look at Yeshua in the book of Mark, in this passage that we just read. Um, in this passage... Uh, he talks about how there are kind of a couple different sets of values. And both of them are important and necessary in a congregation and in society. But on the one side, you have what he calls security-oriented values. Um, and then on the other side, you have challenge-oriented values. Often younger people more go for the challenge-oriented values. Often males, who seem to have a higher degree of testosterone, which makes them kind of funny, um, go for those more challenge-oriented values. You know, stereotypically, right? Um, but I'm going to read you a couple of the challenge-oriented values, and then we're going to have a look at Yeshua and see uh, what, we, what we can learn about him. Uh, risk. Change, conflict, variety, adventure, competition, daring, independence, expansion. These are, these are a couple uh, values that you could generally say people who are challenge-oriented gravitate towards, and uh, it's their, their modus operandi. 
Um, on the other side, security-oriented, I'll read these two. These are good ones, right? Both of these are exemplified in our Savior. You have ones like safety, stability, harmony, predictability, protection, comfort, nurture, duty, support, and preservation. So I'm, we're going to look at a couple of places where Yeshua exemplifies some of these more challenge-oriented values. Because I just I want you to get a vision of Yeshua, that he was not only someone who was very caring and nurturing and relationship-oriented, but he was also a man's man. He was a burly guy. He worked with his hands as a carpenter. And uh, he was a very challenging individual, too. Uh, chapter 10, verse 21, this young guy comes to Yeshua, and Yeshua doesn't just give him a weak answer. He doesn't just say, oh yeah, just whatever, just get on board with me, right? He challenges the guy. He says, you know what? If you want to follow me, you're going to have to go home, because you've got too much money, and you have the wrong attitude towards it. Sell it all, and then come and follow me. That's a challenge. For those of us who need a challenge in life, Yeshua's got a challenge for us. In chapter 10, verse 24, your English translation has Yeshua calling his disciples children. (laughs) This is what happens when you translate something from his original Hebrew language to Greek to English. (laughs) Um, Just, just, uh, how many of you got our email this week about the Hebrew word of the week? Okay, so you, then you already understood that. Yeshua, in original Hebrew, called his disciples Benai, my sons. Why? Because when you take upon yourself a rabbi, he becomes your father. You call him your father. He's your spiritual Abba. And therefore, Yeshua called his disciples my sons. That's just the kind of thing that Yeshua would call his disciples, who were burly guys, who were blue-collar workers. One of them was, at least one of them was ex-militia. Another was something of a, a part of the Jewish insurgency. Uh... These guys, they weren't a bunch of kids. So just hear Yeshua calling you that as you accept the call of discipleship. Calling you his son. Calling you his daughter. You can look at Yeshua as your great father. And of course, he's a picture of our father in heaven. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 25, he says, When you stand praying. This is cool because this is Jewish context. The core prayer in the Jewish tradition is these 18 blessings. It's an awesome prayer, and it's called the Amidah. What does Amidah mean in English? Standing. <laughs> it's, it's called the standing prayer. It's the prayer that you pray as you stand up before God. And, uh, I mean, you know, there's something to be said for being comfortable. There's something to be said for sitting down. But there's, no, there's almost no place for that in the original biblical tradition of prayer. Why? Because we have a God who's alive. Because we have a God who demands our respect, who's worthy of our being in awe of Him. And uh, usually in the scriptures, when you see someone coming in worship or in prayer, they're on their feet, standing in awe before him. They're on their knees or on their faces before him, overwhelmed by who he is. And uh, this is just a little example of that. I think maybe especially sometimes for us guys, I'm, I'm more physically oriented, I'm more kinesthetic. So standing in prayer, getting on my knees, lifting my hands to the Almighty, things like this really help me get involved. And uh, Yeshua touches on that in this parasha. Chapter 10, verse 29, we have a phrase that comes up a lot in the Gospels. Yeshua says to his guys, I tell you the truth. Other places he says, truly, truly. King James Version has him saying, verily, verily. How many of you preface your your comments with verily, verily? You just don't, I don't know, Mike, do you do that in the business world or at a business meeting? If you're going to say something you're really serious about? (laughs) 
What do we say in our culture? What's the cultural equivalent? I'm going to tell you what it is. It's kind of like this. If Yeshua were to look someone right in the eye, and he were to say, seriously? And then whatever he was going to say, that's the idea. If you were to say, Peter, seriously? If you, whatever you give up for me, you're going to get it so many times back. That's the idea. So wherever you see him saying, verily, verily, or I tell you the truth, or whatever, just stop for a minute and realize that the master is looking someone in the eye, he's shooting straight, and he's talking on a very serious level. He's saying, seriously? Thus and so. Uh, chapter 10, verse 29, he talks about how impinged in, 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 in the call of discipleship is sacrifice and ultimately reward. Um, some of us need to know there's a sacrifice to be made and that we will have an ultimate reward. It, it lends meaning to the journey. Uh, this is one of those challenge-oriented values. Uh, chapter 10, verse 32, watch your rabbi walking straight into the face of his opposition. Watch, walk him boldly going to Jerusalem, knowing full well that he's going to die there. If you can imagine a soldier walking straight towards the trenches of the enemy with bullets going all around him, that's the idea. He's walking straight into his death. And it says he was going ahead of his disciples. These guys were scared. They were lagging behind. And Yeshua's jaw was set. He had a tough commitment to God and to follow through on God's call in his life. And that's inspiring. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 35 to 40. uh, James and John want to be great in the kingdom. They want to be Yeshua's right hand and left hand guys. And it's interesting that Yeshua doesn't scold them up and down for being so proud. He doesn't call them on the carpet for their egos. Instead, what does he do? He actually affirms that desire. He says, he, this, is how I, this is how I hear it. He says, guys, it's, great. it's good that you want to be great in my kingdom. It's good that you want to be close to me. And here's how to do it. Here's the path to true greatness. It's not what you think. Be a servant. Be the best slave you can be of me. And you're going to be great in the kingdom. And it will involve pain, drinking that cup that I'm going to drink. It will involve being immersed in the sufferings that I'm going to go through. It's going to be an all-consuming task. But he never told them they couldn't do it. He said, guys, you can do it. <laughs> I kind of liked how your version said ever. They're like, sure, we can, we can take that, you know. And, uh, and Yeshua didn't say, you guys don't have a clue. He said, actually, yeah, you can and you're going to. It's very affirming. Uh, chapter 11, verse 15. This is almost out of control. The master is on a rampage in the temple. On a righteous rampage. This was a premeditated act of violence on his part. He walked into the temple knowing full well what he was going to do. Another gospel uh, gives us some commentary. He didn't walk into the temple empty-handed. He had, he had made a whip for himself first to give him a little more leverage. And he cleared these people out of the temple who were desecrating his father's house. (laughs) What happened to gentle Jesus, meek and mild, hey? There was that side to him. But there was also a side that was aggressive for righteousness, that was he was assertive for the truth of God's word, and there's a place for that in our lives also. If we can, impro- if we can do that in love, in humility, and in humble dependence on the leading of the Holy Spirit like Yeshua. Please, nobody, don't go outside and go on a rampage. Don't go down to Scott's parable in Saskatoon next week and start tossing stuff all over the place, okay? That's not the conclusion of this, of this point. <laughs> Okay, Colin, if you want to flip to the next uh, next slide here. Uh, a mountain. 
This is the theme in the parsha, and also a theme in here. Yeshua talks about moving mountains. He says, you know, your faith enables you to move mountains. Uh, this is a Hebrew idiom for doing great things. It's, uh, it comes up occasionally in early Jewish literature. What he's saying there is, you know what, even a little bit of faith, it's going to inspire you to do great things for God, to make an impact on society. Uh, I think Cherie's a cool example of that. She has faith in God, and she's out there moving mountains in our society, and, and being a voice for moving some of those mountains of uh, infanticide, abortion, um, some of the human trafficking, things like that. That's awesome. I, uh, it's just inspiring that Yeshua says this is a good thing. To, uh, to aspire to move mountains. Uh, to attain the impossible. He talked about how, you know what, like, stuff you could never do on your own, you can do it with God. Isn't that inspiring? Wow. I just, I just feel like Yeshua coming into our lives and empowering us and setting us free and calling us by our true names and affirming us in our missions. And when we come together, it's a time to express that to each other. And, uh, I love that. Thank you, Father. Uh, another place where mountains comes up in this parsha is in chapter 11, verse 24. We'll, we'll springboard from that. Uh, Yeshua says, Anything that you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be granted to you. This is an invitation from Yeshua to something specific. Can you ask for specific stuff in prayer if you don't first want it? No. Can you request things in prayer, make clear requests of the king of the universe, if you haven't first quantified what those things are, if you don't have it clearly in your mind what you're asking him for? No. What does that mean? What it means is Yeshua is inviting each of us to desire great things for the kingdom of God. He's like setting us free to dream big. And then to clarify what, what our dreams are, to, to quantify what our goals are for his kingdom, and to start going to the Father and asking for those things. That is so inspiring. Like, I just, I just really feel Yeshua's call to dream big for the kingdom. Set big goals. You know, with, in, in cooperation with the Father, and then start praying for those things. I know I, I do that in my personal life, and it, it makes a difference. Wow. Um, that's the connection to the parasha. If you want to turn to Exodus, the book of Shemot, chapter 25. Um, Yahweh says three times to Moshe in chapter 25, verse 40. And then in chapter 26 and 27, he says, Okay, Moses, uh, the pattern that you saw on the mountain, go down and make it like that. The mountaintop experience that you had, go down and act that out. And this is along the same lines as what we hear in the book of Mark, Yeshua's, uh, Yeshua's call. Um, this is for each one of us. Uh, God has a vision for each one of us that he wants to impart to us. He has clear goals that he would like to give us that we can work towards and in faith pray towards. Some of those will be for us as individuals. Some of those will be for us as families. And some of those will be for us as a congregation. I'm excited about uh, moving into the future and receiving some of those from him. And uh, I just want to share with you a very practical thing about that. There are going to be times in your life where your heart is going to burn. Where God is, go- you're going to feel the anointing come on you and he's going to give you a vision for something. He's going to set a desire in your heart. 
And I used to have this frequently in my teenage years, and I didn't know what it was. I thought it was just wild daydreaming on my part, but it was like righteous desires. It was good things that I wanted to see happen. And I thought, those are too big. I'll never do that, or, you know, like, whatever. And I never took those seriously. And that was a mistake that resulted in my missing out on some awesome adventures following God in my teen years. And so I just want to give you a practical tip. When you have something like that happen, take it seriously. Realize, this is God talking to me. This is God giving me a vision. Uh, write it down so you don't forget it. It actually says in the prophets, write down the vision. And then what do you do after that? Then you run with it. And a helpful tip also, just to stay humble, is go to some people that you respect in your life. Uh, you know, for me, uh, my mother would be one of those people. Elders that I work with in Saskatoon, uh, other congregational leaders in the States. Uh, go to some people and just check the vision with them. Ask them how it sounds to them. Ask if it, if they have that confirmation in their spirits. Just to make sure you don't go and do something crazy, right? <laughs> we need each other. But write down that vision. Take it seriously. And then go for it in faith. And uh, you're going to do powerful things for God. Here, here's a cool little Hebrew word connection that I think you'll appreciate. The Hebrew word... Okay, what's, what's the, what's the similarity between a pregnant lady and a mountain? <laughs> well, Genevieve, when I asked her that, she said, well, pregnant woman kind of look like a mountain. She's got a, got a mountain around her midsection. <laughs> but the Hebrew word is the same. The mount, word for mountain is har. The word for conceiving or being pregnant is hara. Isha hara is a pregnant woman. So what does that tell us? There's a connection between mountaintop experiences and receiving that vision and pregnancy. Well, here's what I think it is. When you have that mountaintop experience with the Almighty, it's like your his, his prophetic vision, His Word is conceived within you. And it grows for a period of time. Sometimes it seems like it goes dormant. This was evident in the life of Joseph for several years while he was tested. But it's going to reach a period of where the fullness of time comes and it's going to be birthed. And it may be birthed in the midst of great hardships. You might be going through some labor pains. Maybe you'll feel like screaming, as sometimes happens in, in childbirth situations. But it's a good thing. That's where the vision is coming to fruition, where, where you're just being called to work it out. And uh, that's the connection I see between har, mountain, and hara, pregnancy. Okay. Colin, do you want to flip it to the next one there? Thanks. You're an awesome uh, part. Oh, okay. Nice. So uh, this is also the parasha where we learn that God wants your wallet. Moses goes up on the mountain, waits for seven days in silence while the fire blazes and the glory is doing whatever glory does. And what are the first words out of Yahweh's mouth? He says, tell the sons of Israel to... uh, Make a contribution to me. Maybe you could paraphrase by saying, uh, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall hand over their wallets and all major credit cards. <laughs> when it talks about, you know, uh, tell them to offer me their gold and their silver, etc. This is currency from that time. It just It's a, just a little example of how when we make Yeshua master in our lives, we also make him master of our finances and master of our bank accounts. And I love that aspect of discipleship because it's something concrete. It's something that means a lot to me. It's something that I can give him on a regular basis as an act of worship. Uh, we also learn from this parasha that men are like boards 
and women are like curtains. <laughs> okay, did you guys notice, did any of you find yourself zoning out when we were reading the Parsha about all the stuff in the tabernacle and all of the accurate, like very detailed descriptions? I don't know about you, but like, I have a hard time following things like that. Seriously, it's like two seconds in my mind begins to float away to wherever it happens to be floating. And I try so hard to focus, but it's hard. But here's the thing. God is cool. Like, he doesn't just talk to us with words. He talks to us through pictures. So there's some really deep things that he's trying to say to us through the tabernacle. Like the tabernacle, it's a bunch of pictures, but it's actually like our creator trying to tell us some really deep things if we'll get in our imaginative modes and begin to receive that revelation from him. So uh, let's look at that in a sec, right here. Um, you're not actually going to get this if you read this part in English because it's some of the Hebrew wording. Hebrew has masculine and feminine tense. Some things are masculine and some are feminine. And uh, the way it phrases something is really interesting. The, 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 the tabernacle, the Hebrew word is the mishkan. It means the dwelling. Everybody say mishkan. The dwelling. It's a, it's a picture of us as congregation. You know, the tabernacle had different uh, pieces of furniture. It had different elements. And it says that it all fitted together perfectly to become echad, to become one. The New American Standard translates that as a unit. The tabernacle became a unit. And uh, we'll talk about that more. But basically, you know Paul's analogy that the body of Messiah is like a physical body? He used that picture. Uh, it's also true that the tabernacle is a picture of the body of Messiah. So let's look at something cool with that together. Uh, chapter 26, verse 3 of the book of Exodus. It says, <laughs> Five curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. Did I hear an amen? I'm going to read that again. Five curtains shall be joined to one another, and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. Amen. amen. There's a deep truth here. That's why I want you to say amen. We're getting in the zone here, right? Um, these curtains, it talks about them like they're women. It talks about them in the feminine case. And here's how it says it in Hebrew. Chovrot isha el achota. Chovrot is the word for friendship. For being joined together in friendship. For being connected. Colin uh, is a friend of mine. That's why I call him in Hebrew my chaver. He's also someone that I... Uh, Genevieve is someone that I study with. She's my study buddy. And the Hebrew word for that is a chaver. Can you hear that word, that same root there? Chovrot. So that's where it talks about the curtains being joined to each other. It's the word for friendship. And... Uh, It goes on to say, Chovrot Isha, which is literally a woman, El Achota, to her sister. So the way the Hebrew phrases this is, each woman connected to her sister in friendship. That's what it has to say about the curtains. That's a picture of us as a congregation. That's a picture of when we reach the goal of being Echad, of being one as a group which glorifies the Messiah and proves to the world that he was sent by God. There's a, there's a way to get there. There's a process. An important part of it is the sisters just getting together, becoming great friends, connecting. It's, it, I know it's, so, it's hard for women to connect. Women aren't connectors. 
You know, it's so hard for women to just call each other up during the week and say hi and talk and get together and do whatever. I'm just joking. It's like it comes naturally, right? And it's just cool because it's a very spiritual thing. It's a spiritual instinct in you. It's an important part of congregational life. So bless you, sisters, to be the, mo- the awesomest curtains that you can be. You just keep connecting to each other in friendship, and it's going to make our tabernacle strong. And it's interesting that those curtains went over the tabernacle, that they sheltered the holy things, that they provided a covering. That's true also in, in the spiritual realm. When we have a strong sisterhood, there's going to be a, a covering of the holy things that God's entrusted to us. And we guys, we're the boards. That doesn't mean we're bored during our Shabbat celebrations. It doesn't mean the guys are all bored when Izzy's teaching. 26 verse 15, it talks about the boards in the masculine sense. And it says, Then you shall make the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. And the Hebrew word there for standing upright is omdim. Can everybody say omdim? That's us. We're omdim. And it just literally means they're standing. They're standing. And that is your job if you are a male in your congregation. To stand strong in the faith. To support this congregation. The women, they're connecting and they're, they're forming this beautiful spiritual covering and, and it's wonderful. But there's some, we need something to hold that congregation up, to, to give that structure. And that's us. We're the two by fours in the wall. <laughs> that's, the, that's the picture you get out of the tabernacle. Uh, it reminds me of a couple of Paul's challenges. It makes me think that Paul, as a, one of the preeminent Torah scholars of his era, was probably in touch with this dynamic. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians. I'll, I'll read you a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast. Everybody say steadfast. steadfast. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Master, knowing that your toil isn't in vain in the Master. Be steadfast, brothers. Stand immovable. And then in the next chapter, he says the same thing. Chapter 16, verse 13, he says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love. So, that's why I'm bored in congregation. (laughs) Okay. Um... Messianic vision. Yeshua is the fulfillment of the Torah. Uh, when we see the Torah through the Messianic lens, it comes to life. It becomes multi-layered. It gets exciting. And there are a couple of really cool pictures of Yeshua in this parsha. Of course, he is the ultimate fulfillment of the Mishkan. It's a picture of him. Chapter 25, verse 9. It talks about pattern. Moshe, make the, make the tabernacle, the Mishkan, according to the pattern that you saw on the mountain. And uh, that word for the Hebrew term for pattern is tavnit. Can we all say tavnit? The root word of tavnit is the same as the root word for sun. So you could also read that in Hebrew. I'm speaking midrashically here. Moses, make the tabernacle according to the vision of the sun that you have seen on the mountain. I've given you a revelation of Yeshua, Moses. Now go down and materialize that vision in the tabernacle. That's kind of one of the loose meanings you could get out of that in Hebrew. Uh, it's also interesting that preceding that term tavnit, he uses the little Hebrew word spelled with two letters, aleph and tav, et, a tavnit. Yeshua said, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. 
We have a Hebrew-speaking rabbi. In Hebrew, he said, I'm the Aleph and the Tav. That little word is spelled Aleph and Tav. It's another example of how this is pointing to Yeshua. It's a picture of the new covenant reality that we experience. Uh, chapter 26, verse 30, it talks about the, uh, again, the process by which the tabernacle is raised so that God can come and dwell in it in the, in the midst of it in his glory. And it's the word Vahakemota. Can everybody say Vahakemota? Uh, the root for that is calm, and it means to raise or to resurrect. So we, as God's dwelling, God's mishkan on the earth, are become what we're meant to be, a place where he can dwell in his glory through the resurrection of Messiah. When we experience that same power that raised him from the dead, then we are coming into what he has designed us to be, a light to the nations. Um... Okay, and finally, the last one is chapter 25, verse 21. It talks about the atonement, uh, the mercy seat, the atonement, whatever you call it. The blood goes on it. The point is that there's blood on it. And what does it go over? It goes over the testimony. What we see here is a picture of Yeshua. Yeshua's life was a testimony. His teaching was a testimony. And after he fulfilled his mission, at the culmination of it, what did he do? He sealed his testimony with his own blood. With his, with a violent and premature death. That was how he sealed his testimony. And that's pictured in the Mishkan, with the blood sprinkled over the testimony. It's a picture of Yeshua. And uh, it's also a picture of our calling his disciples. Okay. We're going to have a little bit of fun here now. Um, Colin, would you mind just popping over to the camera and zooming it out for me? We're going to do an object lesson. And actually, I need to run out to my truck and get the props, because I just realized they're still in my toolbox. So I'll finish with this. We're going to have an object lesson, because the whole tabernacle is a big object lesson. In uh, chapter 25, verse 22 of the book of Exodus, Yahweh says that there is a place where he will rendezvous with us. There's a specific place where he'll meet with us. How many of you want to meet with the living God and encounter him in a way that will transform you forever? So that Bible study isn't boring. So that when you pray, it's actually real. So that you are in like deep awe of God throughout the day and you just feel his presence in your life tangibly and you can impact the world around you. I mean, this is what happens when we encounter him. And he says there's a place where that happens. He says there's a place where he'll speak to us prophetically. He says there's a place from which he will give us our mission. What's the Hebrew word for behind mission? Mitzvah, commandment. The place where he gives us his commandments, that's the mission. And uh, there's a specific place where all this happens, where he reveals his glory to us. And I don't know about you, but I there's something really deep in me that knows there's so much more to knowing him. There's so much more to him speaking and imparting mission and revealing his glory. And I want to go there. Like That's the quest of my life. And he gives us like the treasure map for how to get there, right? I love maps. If you're a guy, you probably love maps. So I think you're going to like this. It's not only a, a map, it's an object lesson. Um, and it has to do with what was inside that tent. And chapter 27, verse 33 also. He says, okay, Moses, like in the tent, make a curtain. Okay? And it's going to differentiate between like the holy stuff and the really holy stuff. 
So we're going to take a minute, and I'm paraphrasing, right? But correct me if I ever miss the point of this. <laughs> um, we're going to take a minute and prepare for an encounter with extreme holiness. We're going to look at, have a look at the really holy stuff and see what that was really talking about. So, if you want to look at chapter 25 with me, uh, chapter 25, verses 10 to 16, describe the Aron. Uh, it's usually translated the Ark. A better word would be the chest or the box. It's a wooden chest or a wooden box that's coated with gold. And what goes in it? The testimony. What? The rocks go in the box. That's right. The rocks upon which are inscribed the, the covenant words are in there. And uh, that says it in chapter 25, verse 16. Oh, that's a picture of us guys, by the way, standing when storms come. One more. One more. We'll, we'll leave it there. Thanks. Okay, good. So anyway, um, what goes in the box? I, I, I'm going to try and make this a little more meaningful to you. This is, a, this is a cedar box. It smells really nice. Of Genevieve's. And do you know what she keeps in it? She keeps all of my love letters to her in here. That I've written to her from when we were courting and betrothed. And that's what the Aron is all about. What is at the very heart of our national life? What is at the very core of the really holy stuff? A box. What's in the box? This is in the box. His written word. This is in the box. His, his love letters to us as a people. Did you ever stop to think about that? That's what that's a picture of. So we're going to put that right there. And what's over top of the box? In chapter 25, verse 17 to 22, it says the kaporet is over top of the box. That's translated as mercy seat sometimes. It's best translated as a covering or a lid. It's talking about the lid on the box, the covering on the chest. The root, for, the root there for kaporet is kapar. Can anybody think of any Hebrew words that have that root in it? It's the holiest day of the year on the biblical calendar. Huh? Yom Kippur, that's correct. What is Yom Kippur? The Day of Atonement, that's right. So, this lid is basically, it's a covering, it's the atonement, Uh, you could even say propitiation is another word. And what is sprinkled on the atonement? The atoning blood, right? Okay, so what what is this atonement? What is it a picture of? It's a picture of Yeshua's blood that he shed for us, which was actually a very violent thing that he went through. That was graphic, and he did it because he loves us. He did it to win our hearts. He did it to redeem his bride. And that's what that's a picture of. So we'll, uh, we'll take this here, and we'll see that this is the atonement. Okay? And it goes over top of there. All right, there. How's that look? Good. And finally... What is the last element on the ark that's described? In chapter 25, verses 18 to 22, there are kruvim, there are cherubim on it. And uh, Rylan and Ken, do you guys want to be my cherubim? Want to come up here with me? 
Okay, I need one of you cherubs to stand on this side. By the way, cherubs are awesome. They were like really powerful and huge and cool. So this is this is a compliment to you guys, okay? And then you stand right here. Okay, you guys are the cherubs. Yeah, right, like those dudes. Don't fly away on us now. We know you have wings, but don't fly away on us. Okay, now it says something. Um, okay, I noticed you guys have wings. What, what, are, what, are the, what are the cherubim's wings doing? It says they're like spread out over it. And actually, it, it even says that, that they're touching. There's another place where it says they touch. So you guys can put your wings way up, way out and way out like this, and then make your wings, make your wings touch. Ah, London Bridge, exactly. Okay, awesome. You guys are, you guys are good cherubim so far. Okay. Now just, just stay like that for a second. So this is a picture of the ark. Now the question is, what do the cherubim represent? The cherubim represent you. Uh, the root word for kruvim is karav, and it's a cognate, which means it's very closely related to the Hebrew word for drawing near to God in worship, to approaching the Holy One, to coming close to His throne in worship and in prayer. You remember the word korban in the book of Mark that comes up? It's that word. All right? All of the offerings in Hebrew, they're called korbanot. And that's the root of it. So these guys are a picture of us when we come to the throne of the king of the universe. And it's, there are so many profound uh, levels of meaning on here. I just want to uh, point one out. In chapter 25, verse 22, it says that they're, they're, uh, the word is sechach in Hebrew. They're sechaching. It's the same word as a sukkah, like a shelter. It says they're, they're sheltering the, uh, the box that has the written word, that has the atoning blood. And this is a picture of us. When we gather, we are protecting the written word of God. It is safe in our midst and it's preserved for, in perpetuity. Um, we're sheltering the gospel message. We are, ze- we are passionate about what Yeshua has done for us. We're passionate about the message of salvation that the Father has entrusted to us. And that's, that's a picture of, th- these guys are a picture of that. You can see they're, they're, they're around it. They're over top of it. They're guarding it. And, uh, that's what we do as, as we meet, as we, as we live our lives, as we teach and worship, as we midrash, all of these things. Um, chapter 25, verse 20, it's another example of how you missed the, you missed the meaning in English. It literally says their faces, these guys' faces here. Are your hands getting tired? You're doing okay? Okay, just hold each other's hands up if you need to or whatever. Like lock, lock your wrists or whatever. And okay, it says, uh, their, uh, it says their faces are ish, el achiv, el hakaporet. Literally it says their faces are each man to his brothers to the atonement. That's how it says in Hebrew. The faces of the worshippers are each man to his brother to the atonement. No, no, uh, no thumb wars now. <laughs> I like thumb wars, but not right now. Um, Okay, so th- this is a picture of what happens in worship when, and, and when we pray together. Like, did you guys notice when these guys look at each other, they're not looking at each other in the flesh anymore as we physical humans tend to do. They're looking at each other through the glory of God. So when they look at each other, who do they see? They see Yeshua. They see the glorious one. And that's what happens to us. Like, when I look at you, I see Messiah. I, I, I look and I see your awesome heart. I see who you are as a, a child of the King. I see who, I see your potential. I, I see you through the Father's glory. And, uh, let's just continue to make a choice to look at each other through His glory like that. And, uh, it's cool too that when they look at each other in prayer and worship, etc., 
Where do their faces go? It says, each man's face to his brother, to the atonement. So our, our focus in a context like that ultimately is Yeshua, what he has done for us as a people. I don't know about you, but when I realize, uh, let's say that I look at my brother Wayne, and I realize that Yeshua loved this guy so much that he died for Wayne. When I look at my wife Genevieve, and I realize that there is a man standing beside the throne in heaven, praying for her 24-7, living to intercede for her, that he's totally on her side, that he supports her, that he's her biggest fan. I have a really hard time getting mad at Genevieve. I mean, we do things that irritate each other, right? But when I look at Genevieve through the glory of Yeshua, and when I look at her as an example, because I'm closer to Genevieve and I prob- we probably are tempted to get mad at each other more than I'm tempted to get mad at anybody else on planet Earth, right? When I look at Genevieve with, with this picture, then I see Yeshua. And it makes all the difference. And we become a supernatural people with supernatural love. The kind of thing that wows the world around us. That just doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. How can these people love each other? How can they see the good in each other like this? So, I'll just finish with that. And, uh, this is, and this is cool too because at the very core of our national life as a people, at the very depths of our heart as a nation, this is, this is, this is what keeps us going. This is the engine that propels the kingdom machine. The written word is love letters to us. The atonement, the blood of Messiah and the gospel message and us gathering together over it in worship and in prayer. So, Anyway, I hope that makes this partially just come to life for you guys. Thank you for being awesome cherubim. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.